The views expressed on this show by guests and the host on issues outside of the 9-11 controlled demolition evidence are the opinions of those individuals alone and do not necessarily reflect those of architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. Welcome to 9-11 Freefall. I'm the host, Andy Steele. Tonight, we're joined by Ted Walter, and Ted is the Director of Strategy here at AE 9-11 Truth. He's also the lead author of a little book called Beyond Misinformation, What Science Says About the Destruction of World Trade Center Buildings 1, 2, and 7. You can see mine's all dented and dog-eared because I reference this book so much. It's such a, just a concise summary of the uh, World Trade Center evidence. He's also the author of our 2016 publication, which is called World Trade Center Physics. And I don't have a copy of that here at my desk. But that's also a very good read. And uh, most recently, he's authored the AE 9-11 Truth, uh, Request for Correction to the NIST Report on World Trade Center Building 7, which we're going to be talking about a little bit more tonight. That was submitted back in April of 2020. And we are still fighting that battle out. And we are not done. We are going to be challenging them in the system of law, the court system. But uh, without any further ado, let's welcome our guest here. This is Ted. And Ted, welcome to 9-11 Freefall. Thanks, Andy. It's always good to be on. So we're going to be planning a lot of new things here in the new year. One of them is the program that you are watching right now. We're doing a little test balloon with this. Uh, because uh, honestly, I've wanted to do the video format ever since the anniversary. I used to be a little intimidated by the uh, by the just the scope of it, or what I perceived as the scope of it. But then when I did the anniversary event, I was like, yeah, "This is actually pretty easy." So we're gonna try this out sometime. Uh, so let's see how it goes tonight. Still working on the lighting situation too. It's a work in progress. But uh, Ted is here tonight because there's been a lot going on in the world of 9/11 Truth, particularly with AE 9-11 Truth, and uh, there's going to be a lot more going on this year because we are moving forward and doing what needs to be done to get justice for the families. They are the most important, and they're the people that we do this work for. So, uh, Ted, let's get started with the area that I find to be the most impactful, the most interesting, personally, and what I'm really following here. This is the inquest. Uh, going on in the UK. Also, the NIST lawsuit, the legal stuff. It's so important, and it's, I think, how we're going to get justice if we don't get it through the Congress. Uh, but first, you know, remind our audience what the inquest is about. We'll start with that. Uh, there may be newbies coming on to the program for the first time, just catching up with all of our great work. Please tell them uh, what you've been doing in the UK this year. Sure. So, um, AE 9 Truth uh, for the last couple of years has been working with a family uh, from the United Kingdom. Um, it's the family of Jeff Campbell. Uh, Jeff uh, died in the World Trade Center in the North Tower on September 11, 2001. Um, he was on the 106th floor uh, at a Risk Waters conference uh, when the tower was struck. 
And um, of course, we all know the building came down um, a little more than you know, you know, an hour and 45 minutes later. Um, Jeff, uh, Jeff's family since then, you know, has been struggling and, um, you know, wanting to get the truth about how he died. Um, in particular, his brother, Matt, who many people in the 9-11 Truth Movement are familiar with at this point, um, has sort of spearheaded um, his family's efforts um, over the years and specifically with this uh, attempt to get a new inquest into Jeff's death. Um, so uh, an inquest was finally held for Jeff um, along with about like 10 or 11 other British 9-11 um, victims in 2013. And um, uh, the inquest was, I mean, it was fairly cursory um, kind of summary of kind of the official story and, and what was you know brought to the coroner. Uh, first of all, if you don't not familiar with what an inquest is, um, it, it's a procedure that happens in the UK. I'm sure it happens in other places as well, but it's a legal procedure that happens um, after the, a death happens sort of in unusual circumstances where um, the coroner there then is just trying to establish the the cause of death, like sort of the proximate cause of death. Um, and not not necessarily who killed this person, but how did this person die? Um, and so the official, you know, the, the finding in the 2013 inquest was that Jeff, along with the other um, British 9-11 victims, um, died in the collapse of the North Tower um, that was brought about by the tower being struck um, at 8.46 a.m. that day. Um, and so, you know, after a couple of years, Matt, um, his brother, started pushing to get a new invest, you know, to get a new investigation and, and thought, you know, knew that there was a way in British law to try to get a new um, inquest to take place if, if the family uh, feels that the original inquest um, was, was incorrect in its conclusions. Um, and the, the fortunate thing as, you know, you know, I, I met Matt in 2018, early 2018, and we started talking throughout that year. He came over to the U.S. for the 9-11 um, anniversary in 2018 um, and was at the U.S. Capitol with us that year. Um, but, you know, that around that time, we started talking about trying to open the new inquest. He was working at it before, but, you know, I said, look, there, this is something that really, um, you know, w warrants a 9-11 Truth's help. Um, this is a real opportunity to get a new investigation. And so we started working on it slowly. We were kind of waiting for a while, thinking that the British government might change, that if there was a change in government, that the conditions would be more favorable. And so we were kind of being patient for a while in terms of trying to start the process to get the new inquest. Once it became clear that the British government was going to change and that the, the uh, Tories were going to stay in power and Boris, uh, Boris Johnson was, um, you know, made the, uh, the prime minister, we said, all right, well, you know, let's not wait any longer. Let's just, let's go for it. So in the middle of 2020 or early to middle of 2020, we started working and, and, and looking for a barrister to represent Matt's family. And, um, you know, things really got going much faster at that point. We had started earlier doing some research and developing the case, but things really got started getting going when we talked to a barrister. I'm giving you the long story here, so I, ho I hope it's entertaining enough. Um, but I haven't told the story in this much detail uh, very many times. So, um, yeah, so in 20, 2020, we started working with a barrister named Nick Stanage um, with uh, Dowdy Street Chambers, um, who took on the case. You know, he, Matt had spoken with him five years prior to that, and he was open to it, um, but it never really got going, largely because Matt wasn't able to raise the, the, the funds needed at that time to start, you know, to hire, to hire Nick uh, Stanage. Um, 
but so but we knew that he was open to it and when when nick took a look at the evidence that um AE9LM Truth had assembled and others had, had assembled over the years, he was actually blown away by the, you know, the, the, the breadth and, and the strength of the evidence. You know, he was almost shocked because he, I mean, he's not a very judgmental guy, you know, but he, he you know, you hear about 9-11 Truth and you think like, oh, that's a really, that's a far-fetched theory or that, you know, who knows how much evidence they really have. He was kind of blown away by the, by the amount of evidence and how compelling it was. And um, you know, agreed to take on the case if we could, you know, raise the funds needed to to hire him. And we, you know, we had some funds at the time that we used it for him to get him to get started in a preliminary way. Um, then raise more funds um, around close to the 9/11 anniversary in, in 2020. So we got going, and um, this that's sort of the backstory, the first phase of it. And um, it ended up taking a lot longer than we expected to put together the application for the new inquest. Um, it's essentially um, to get a new inquest in the UK, uh, you have to um, essentially just show, I mean, there's a few different thing, ways that you can approach it, um, things that you have to demonstrate. Um, the, the most basic one is that not all the evidence was presented at the first inquest. And if you have new evidence, it doesn't have to be like it didn't exist before, but just if you have evidence that was not presented at the first inquest that could change the, the original verdict, then you're entitled to have a new inquest. And you approach the attorney general first, um, which is pretty much the equivalent to our attorney general um, in the United States. Um, you approach the attorney general first for their authority, and then they grant their authority for you to apply to the high court. Um, and then you apply to the high court for an order um, quashing the original inquest and granting a new one. Um, and uh, and so that's, that's really, that's the process that we're involved in right now. Um, we... And, and it's as I can't emphasize enough that it's a very low threshold to to that you have to demonstrate. You know, that it's it's not the not the job of the attorney general to look at the evidence and decide does this evidence decisively change the verdict of the original inquest. Um, the the attorney general's job is really to look at the evidence and more like take it at face value. Like if this evidence has the you know does do what the applicants say it, it does if we take it at face value could it could it change the the original verdict you know and if there's any chance that the original verdict could change you know just a reasonable chance then that the new inquest is supposed to be granted and so you know this is a, a basically a slam dunk situation um there, there, are, there have been many legal efforts in the past you know two decades um related to 9-11 and the 9-11 truth movement where you know maybe we were throwing a hail mary or you know, it was a long shot or things really had to go our way. In this case, we, ha we have a situation where like the law is completely tailored to our goal, you know, because it's supposed to be easy for families to get a new inquest if they believe that the findings of the, of the original inquest were, were at fault. You don't want to make it hard for families to feel that they have the truth um, about how their loved ones died. So the law is designed to make it easy for families to get the new inquest. Um, so we spent the past year putting together the application. Um, I was primarily, primarily me working closely with Nick Stanage and Matt Campbell. Um, although other, other people helped out a little bit here and there along the way. Um, and we, one of the things that we did that was brand new was we went and found eyewitnesses, um, who, you know, people who in the past have, have given their account of what they witnessed, um, you know, whether it's in the FDNY oral histories or the Port Authority police um, reports or other sources, 
um, on sometimes in TV and, and film. Um, and we went and found those people and, and we approached many people to ask them to, um, if they would testify, if there were a new inquest held. And we found five people willing to um, give their account again and to testify at a new inquest. And so, a lot, you know, we, the, the application that we finally submitted this past August, um, a couple of weeks before the 20th anniversary, um, it's 2,500, roughly 2,500 pages of evidence. Some of those are the, you know, the, the statements of these eyewitnesses, basically retelling their stories, referencing their original, um, the original documentation related to their uh, stories, and, you know, saying that they would come and testify at the new inquest. We also have six um, expert witnesses who gave testimony as part of the application um, and who are, you know, ready to testify um, I won't say if, I'll say when the new, when the new inquest happens um, within the next year or two. Um, and so, yeah, this, many people, you know, the story that I'm telling will be familiar to a lot of people, um, especially now if they have seen the film, um, The Unspeakable, which we're probably going to talk about in a little bit, um, you know, uh, which features Matt and his, his brother um, and his, his mother, Maureen, um, and, but also, um, Matt's father and and the um, the fiance, the ex fiance, the surviving fiance of Jeff is also a party to the application, and um, you know I think that it, you know the I, again just because it's so viable um, and it's really like a perfect situation for us. You know, everybody knows that architects and engineers for 9 truth focuses only on the evidence of controlled demolition. This is a situation like a legal, um, you know, situation where the, the only thing that we're trying to demonstrate um, is that the buildings were brought down by controlled demolition um, and, and specifically the North Tower where Jeff was. You know, all that all that this, you know, that the Campbell family is trying to do right now, as far as this inquest is concerned, is demonstrate um, that that fact. Um, and so, uh, you know, we are very well suited to be assisting the Campbell family in in that you know in that case in that effort um we uh you know we should we expect we submitted that in mid mid to late oh, it was august 26th so we expect to really we expected to hear back within six months of when we submitted so that would be early this year perhaps in february um could happen any day could happen six months from now we don't know exactly when when the attorney general um will respond we i don't imagine it'll happen more than a year from when we first submitted. Um, I'm just like you, Andy, I'm thrilled about this. Um, I think this is only because it's so, because it is, you know, the chances of prevailing are so good. And if we don't, if, we, if the attorney general says no, um, I mean, it will be a total miscarriage of justice and we will appeal that decision to, um, to the high court if the attorney general says no. But you know, really, there, there's no reason why they should say no unless politics gets in the way. But we, we're pretty confident that it won't. And, um, you know, to be able to, above all else, it's just the, the opportunity to work with the Campbell family um, and to know that we're, you know, we're at least helping this one family. Although we expect many other families to learn about this and be affected by it and want action taken afterwards. Um, you know, we're it's been an honor um, and a privilege for me and for everyone at 18 Island Truth to work with Matt and his family uh, to bring truth and justice for Matt's brother, Jeff. That's right. And uh, I have a quote here that I took for actually you took it but brought my attention to it. And it's from The Unspeakable. 
which we'll be talking about, but uh, it says, it's from Ian Henshaw. One of the most important things that happened to the 9-11 Truth Movement was that Matt Campbell turned up, and he's really showing some serious leadership skills and raising the call for a new need for, or a need for a new inquest for his brother. And what's interesting is that this has actually gotten attention in the UK. When I was helping you out trying to find photographers uh, to take a picture of Matt's mom for the billboard that we just did, uh, the, lady had, the lady had actually heard about this issue, not just about the controlled demolition evidence, but had heard specifically about the inquest. So I take these little signs uh, as a mark of success for AE 9-11 Truth and of course for the Campbell family. So that's going to be something to keep an eye on. And, uh, you know, things that happen in court, they move very slow a lot of times. Uh, so, you know, we are moving forward with that and we will keep everyone updated on this as new developments occur. But we've also got things going on here in the United States because that is where 9-11 took place, right? Here in New York City. And we've been pursuing NIST for a very long time. Now we're really going after them uh, with the request for correction and the lawsuit. Again, Ted, we sometimes have new people here on the show, new to the movement. Please give our audience a brief overview of what that is all about. Yeah, so this one is um, a lot more, I guess you could say, technical uh, than the inquest, which in some ways is very straightforward. A family trying to establish the truth about the cause of the death of their son. Um, with the uh, request for correction and the current lawsuit that's underway, um, this was a process that was started um, a year, almost two years ago. Uh, it was April of 2020. Um, we, uh, as many people know, we funded uh, a study by Professor Leroy Halsey at the University of Alaska Fairbanks uh, that took four years to complete. And he finally um, issued the, the final report of that study in March of 2020, uh, so almost two years ago. And we, you know, once we, once the results of the study started to become clear towards the end in the final year, I mean, obviously we were getting updates along the way, but once we were, things really came into focus, um, we decided that we should, um, one of the things that should come out of the study is that we should use the findings of the study to um, pursue a request for correction with NIST. Um, two discs final report on World Trade Center Building 7. And, and so we began preparing for that, I would say, in the later 2020, in the early, or later 2019, early months of 2020, um, and uh, submitted this request for correction to NIST um, a few weeks after the um, University of Alaska Fairbanks report was uh, issued in March of 2020. Um, what the request for correction does um, is basically... Uh, identify several areas in the NIST report where NIST violates its own information quality standards. Um, NIST was required, I think a law that was passed back in 2000 called the Information Quality Act or the Data Quality Act, um, both names are used. Uh, NIST was required to establish, and many other, all, all other federal agencies were required to establish information quality standards that all of their information that they issue in reports like the NIST report has to um, comply with. Um, and the, the idea is to ensure that information issued by federal agencies is objective and, you know, unbiased and secure and all these other, all these other things. Um, we found 
I mean, I think there's more, but we focused on eight areas of the, of the report that we felt we could demonstrate violated their information quality standards, in particular, the standard of objectivity um, that, that NIST's, um, the information that NIST issued was unbiased and, and uh, objective. Um, a lot of that had to do with NIST, with the computer modeling related to Building 7, um, and, and, but not so much in the, in the weeds like, you know, ones and, ones and uh, zeros and such, more like um, the story that NIST told about how the collapse initiated. Um, their modeling had, you know, their modeling produced a story. And we could look at that story um, and tell that there were issues with it um, when you understand the actual construction, the design and construction of the building. There were things that, um, you know, engineers back in the early days after the final report was issued, which was in 2008. So 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, a lot of discoveries were made. And, and then there was a bunch of documents that were released around that time, 2011 or 2012. Um, that gave people more of an understanding of the design of the building. Um, and a lot of discoveries were made around that time um, about, you know, how the construction of the building and how the story um, didn't hold up. Um, and a lot of that then was then put to the test with the computer modeling that, that um, Dr. Leroy Holsey did at UAF. Um, and so the first, I want to say, four areas of the request were really focused on that initiating event um, that NIST says initiated the, the, the chain of the chain reaction, um, the series of structural failures that led to the total collapse, which from the beginning to end, you know, from when the chain started to when the collapse began was something like seven, you know, about seven seconds. It was very, um, very brief. Um, well, there's the collapse initiation and then there's the, the actual seven second collapse. And then there's an event that precedes the collapse initiation that everyone's familiar with, which is the fall of the um, East Penthouse. Um, anyway, um, so the, the request basically looks at these and, and says like, I mean, I could really get into the weeds here, um, but, you know, basically shows how, um, you know, these things couldn't have happened. So like this, this feature that NIST omitted from its modeling which NIST has admitted that it omitted from its modeling, if you actually include that feature in the model, the failure that NIST says happened couldn't, couldn't have taken place. Basically, the, the idea that these beams that were pushing into this girder and that this girder would then fall off of its seat, there's a particular structural feature on the girder called the stiffener. The, the girder, once it gets pushed over the edge of the beam that it's sitting on, it won't start to tip over if this, and, and, and the bottom of it won't start to bend if this feature is on it. It will just sit there leaning over the edge, but it won't actually start to bend if this stiffener is, is attached to it. And NIST left that stiffener off in its model. And we, we basically proved through the UAF modeling um, that the, if the stiffener is there, the, the beam won't, won't bend, the, the girder won't bend and it won't walk off of its seat, and then you won't get this set of structural failures that happened after that. That's just one example. That's, that's the most blatant example, partly because it was something that we know that NIST just left off, and if you include it, it has this effect. Um, there were also other areas of it where, you know, the, the fifth area, I mentioned eight, the fifth area, um, NIST um, is where we really focus on, on the free fall, and we focus on the, fail, the fact that NIST model does not reproduce any of the observed 
um, you know, features of the collapse, um, the free fall, uh, the instantaneous initiation of free fall, uh, also the lack of deformation in the actual collapse versus a NIST model where there's a huge amount of deformation. Um, and uh, one other, you know, the, the directionality of it, you know, it comes straight down. And NIST, what's great about, when you really dig into the NIST report, you can find a lot of these observations that NIST made about the actual event that contradict what's in their model. So NIST does a very good job, actually, if you look at some of their figures of showing us that there was zero deformation of the structure, like none. Like they even say 0.6 seconds into the initiation of collapse, the, the upper corners of the building had not even moved a bit. They hadn't even like, they're saying that the collapse is initiated and yet there's no deformation and no displacement of the upper corners of the building. And they make that observation. We don't make it, they do for us. So, um, you know, we, that was one area that we focused on. Um, and, and, and so basically NIST claims that their model reproduced the, the collapse was reasonably similar to the collapse, I think was the terminology that, that they used. Um, and we make the case that, it, that it's not. Um, the last three areas that have to do with evidence of explosions and incendiaries um, that NIST essentially omitted. Um, and you know, one of those is the seismic evidence of explosions, which NIST, um, NIST interprets the seismic signals that were emitted from the World Trade Center site at that time as being due to like you know, floors falling inside the building. Um, you know, we had Dr. Andre Rousseau testify as part of this process, as part of the request that there's no way that falling floors can can generate um, seismic waves that will travel all the way up to um, Lamont Dirty Lamont Dirty Earth Observatory. Um, you know, I can't remember the exact distance, but I want to say like 30 kilometers away. Um, and other things as well. And then in the, in the, uh, the other part of the request, we talked about all the eyewitness accounts of, ex of explosions. We looked at the story of Barry Jennings. If you dig into the NIST report, you see that NIST claims that it took um, Barry Jennings, the eyewitness in, you know, who witnessed the explosion that morning that many people are familiar with, um, and the person who was with him, Michael Hess, who was the corporate counsel of New York City, so the head lawyer, um, that it took them 29, 28 minutes to descend uh, 17 floors. That's about a minute and 40 seconds per floor. Um, I don't, you know, it would take you, if you're running down the stairs, it would take you, I don't know, five or 10 seconds to go to get one flight of stairs, which is what Barry Jennings said in his story that they were basically hopping landings. So there's no, no way that it, so, but in this story, that's what they say that it took Barry Jennings and Michael Hess that long, um, 28 minutes to descend 17 stories in order for NIST's story to make sense. And so it's very, NIST is trying to dismiss the idea that what they witnessed was an explosion by saying that what they, um, what they witnessed at 1028 was just the, the collapse of the North Tower and, and the debris hitting the building. Um, in reality, what they witnessed occurred much earlier than 1028. Um, so there's a lot of detail in the request. Oh, the last one is the steel, the sulfidation of steel that NIST never investigated, never never did any tests or anything that was documented in the FEMA report, as many people are aware. Um, so it was a long document, uh, 100 pages that I, I drafted myself, but with the help of many people, um, about a dozen experts, um, as well as um, the you know Mick Harrison, the attorney who. Um, is the executive director of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Um, 
And that started a whole process where we were hoping that somebody at, at NIST would um, do the right thing and actually amend their report um, to address the, the issues identified in our request for correction. Um, and we, not that we were expecting them to, we were hoping that they would. Um, they came back a little more than four months later with uh, denying an initial denial of our request for correction. Uh, we appealed that a month later. This was in September of 2020. Um, we added some evidence in December of 2020, actually, a new eyewitness that we, um, an eyewitness account that we discovered and who we actually, I tracked down this eyewitness. Um, she was a, a news person, uh, a news anchor, not an anchor, but a, a, a reporter for New York One. Um, her name was Annika Pergament. Um, no, that was who we thought it was. It's been a long time. Um, it was, um, I want to say Stonewood. Gigi Stonewood was her name. Um, and uh, we, um, yeah, she, um, you know, she, she reported in the, that day a very loud explosion when Building 7 came down. She said that on, on TV, we only found it like a day after we submitted our appeal. Somebody brought it to our attention. So we submitted the, the, that evidence in December, and then we actually tracked her down. I tracked her down, and she repeated her story via email to me. Um, that it was a very, that it was a loud explosion. And so we submitted that to NIST and we said, if you're going to really do a proper investigation of this, you need to contact her and, and interview her. Um, when NIST came back with their final decision in July of this past year, and I apologize for all the detail, but I assume if people are listening, they want to hear, you know, all the, the juicy details of this story. Um, when, when NIST came, came back to us um, with a final decision in July, they basically said that that evidence that we submitted in December didn't count because it wasn't submitted um, along with when we submitted the appeal in September. Um, but they said, even if it worked, even if it did count, you know, our, our rationale here still holds. Um, they didn't really have a rationale for, I mean, if you go and read their response, their initial response, and then their final, final decision, it's, it's mind blowing how, how um, empty they are and how unresponsive they are. Sorry to cut it short, folks, but we only have a half hour allotted in the No Lies Radio stream, but you can go into the archive at noliesradio.org and listen to the full 90-minute interview. It's well worth it. You can also watch the video there, too, as well as go to 911freefall.com. We have an archive there. But thank you for listening, and please have a safe and happy new year.